sing with me. Our Father who art in heaven, the rocks cry out your fame. So come and let your glory, come and let your glory fall. I will sing, I will sing, sing a new song. I will sing, sing a new song. I will sing, sing a new song. I'm so grateful to all of you um, for being here tonight. Thank you so much. There are so many reasons that I should not have a podcast. <laughs> um, one of them is that um, I really, really hate technology. Sorry, I'm winded because I love you guys so much. Um, I really, really hate technology, and technology hates me. It's, um, I think it can smell my fear. And <laughs> when I hear words like... Um, password or Wi-Fi or going live. Um, it produces a lot of anxiety, and it's the kind of anxiety that um, makes me pour sweat. Um, the other reason that I should not have a podcast is because I have a loose filter and a hot head, and I really need to make uh, praying twice and speaking once a discipline. And so a microphone has potential to be a little dicey, you know what I mean? Um, but the reason that I do have a podcast is because I am surrounded by the most humble, most insightful people. And as we were living life together and they were sharing their stories with me, their very private stories um, with very private details, I was overcome with the idea that everyone in the whole world needs to hear these very private details. And so I begged these insightful people to come into my closet with me. That's where the sound's best, in case you don't know. Um, and to pretty, pretty, pretty please let me push record and then let me push publish. And they have been gracious. Will you please make a lot of noise if you have ever contributed to the podcast? Oh, come on. <laughs> um, and I realized that what was happening in my closet um, was that my closet was becoming a space not where just where clean and, and folded laundry 
went to die because I can't be bothered to put it away. Um, or not just a place where I occasionally hide from my kids with wine and cheese and crackers, join me. Um, but my closet was becoming a place where it was becoming easier and easier to see that God's best work is done in relationship, in oneness, and in connectivity. My closet was becoming a place of redemption and forgiveness and reconciliation. God longs for us to be one. It's how the world will know, he says, oneness. And that's a light way to start with a heavy place to go. Because the truth is that we are not living in oneness and the church is not exempt. This is a contentious time where every single thing is fever pitched. Race, religion, politics, gender. There is so much hate in the world. And when we try to talk about it, if we try to talk about it, Everyone's kind of trying to figure out where we are in a grid. You know what I mean? It's like there's that fourth of an inch inspecting eyebrow raise that wants to know, are you left or are you right? Are you conservative or are you liberal? Fox News or CNN? Republican or Democrat? And so can I just make a suggestion? Can we get rid of the grid? Because I am a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't belong to this world. I belong to that one. I don't fit in any box neatly. Actually alien, to use his exact words. You and I, if we are Christians, are following an alternate script. And so instead of being engaged with this secular society and our societal norms, instead we can transform the secular with the sacred. And one thing that I think is important right now is to talk about how Jesus is Lord, not was Lord, and then he died. Because it would make more sense to try to fit into the secular society if Jesus just was Lord and then he died. But Jesus is Lord right now, seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling over nations, Lord. And because of that, we don't abide by our secular society and these societal norms. Instead, we follow a Jesus way. We don't abide by a Christianized version of what's normal here. We follow a Jesus way to get there. And when we succumb to the worldly tendency to try to fit into boxes that don't ever work, we miss him. And by the way, Jesus certainly didn't fit in any box, did he? Jesus never quite fit in. And it wasn't just his words. It wasn't just what he said. And there were plenty of those, by the way. Here's an example. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Don't you know his disciples were like, sheesh, Jesus, could you just ease them in a little bit? Don't you know his disciples were following him around wincing, going, oh, what's he going to say next? But it wasn't just what he said, it was what he did. Because he talked to people he wasn't supposed to talk to. He argued with people he wasn't supposed to argue with. He ate with people he wasn't supposed to eat with. He touched people he wasn't supposed to touch. And he welcomed the people that we would reject. And he befriended the people we would exclude. And he hired the people that we would fire. The selfish, the lonely, the partiers, the misbehaved, the oppressed, the judged, the promiscuous, the ones caught up in bad choice after bad choice, the ones with broken hearts. 
It was their house he wanted to visit. It was them he called down from the tree. They are who he met at the well. It was them he reached out to touch. For them he drew in the sand. And listen, none of this was exactly safe. Because in the dramatic story of Jesus Christ, there was a political power, Pilate. There was an economic power, Herod. And there was a religious power, Caiaphas. And all of them played a part in the murder of Jesus Christ by crucifixion. Why? Because they correctly assumed that he was a threat to the existing arrangement. There was this carpenter going around from Nazareth. By the way... That's like saying a mechanic from Snook. Honestly, like the towns are about the same size. Can you imagine? I'm a mechanic from Snook. Follow me. But there was this carpenter from Nazareth going around talking about how the first shall be last and the last shall be first, claiming to be God's own son and trying to reorder a world that was based on power and dominance into one based on love and mercy. Yeah, no. Blasphemy and treason, they said, and they killed him. And I can see how it might be confusing without eyes to see, because the cross looks like death, doesn't it? It looks like loss. How could death be anything more than loss? Here was Jesus refusing to fight back. He was putting people's ears back on. How could Christ be crucified if he was the Messiah? How could Christ be the Messiah if he was crucified? How in the world could the cross be anything more than just a grisly death? But we know with eyes to see that the cross isn't about death anymore, is it? The cross is about life. And the cross is about salvation. And listen, here it is. The cross is about a new way. The the cross triumphed over all the ugly ways of the world. And we know that because he rose. We just celebrated our resurrected God. He rose. So when seen through the lens of resurrection, the cross isn't about death anymore. The cross isn't the shameful public humiliation of our God. It's the shameful public humiliation of the ways of the world which tried to kill him. He took ignorance and hate and greed and he turned it into strict obedience and boundless love and radical forgiveness. He invalidated the ways of this world with his new way of love. Jesus was not going to play by the rules of this world. He was going to overcome them, and we must also. And I want to start this night out. This is the point, is that we must do more than just say that Jesus is Lord. We have to also live out the gospel he proclaimed because I'm afraid that we are formed enough to confess that Jesus saves the whole world through his cross, but we don't want anything to do with it. We all want change, but we're too afraid to die. And so sitting around and talking about God with our smart friends, it isn't enough. We have to also live out the gospel he proclaimed. The reason the world isn't changed by our Christianity isn't because we're not sitting around talking about it enough. We're doing that. The reason the world isn't changed by our Christianity is because we are not doing what Jesus did. So church, don't we long for the love between us to be so palpable, so tangible that people outside of the church long to discover God and join us? Isn't that what it's all about? That they might look at us and be intrigued. 
Because the truth is that we are not going to scream or angrily protest a very hurt and broken world into moral conformity. It's not going to happen. But what we can do is we can show them a new way. In the new way, it requires oneness. It absolutely requires it. In a world that is suffering and hurting, the church has to be the main communicator of the hope that lies within us. And that's what this night is all about. And I don't mean to make any of it sound easy. I know that it's not because, you know, I, knowing right from wrong and identifying the vulnerable and being obedient, that might be a simple thing, but it is not an easy thing. I have felt my own heart hide. And I have experienced my own mouth close in a desire to stay comfortable. We're here tonight to talk about race. And trust me, I was not eager to host a conversation about arguably the most divisive topic in American history. I've only just begun as a student on the topic. I understand that my white voice is very limited. And I'm not here tonight because I think that I have anything to share. I laid in bed last night and I was tossing and turning and I, and I couldn't sleep and a million times over, the question, who do you think you are? I kept asking myself. And I heard the Lord in his gentle way say, beloved, beloved is who you are. And I pushed that away and I complained and I said, I can't, I can't do this, I'm not equipped. And I felt him sweetly answer me, I can do this, I am equipped. And I pushed that away and I whined and I said, I'm going to mess up and people are going to quit liking me. And this time he was a little matter of fact, I think he might have even shrugged his shoulders and he said, probably. And so the change of tone caught my attention, and I sat up in bed, and I looked around, and I put my head in my hands, and I said, this is going to be so complicated. This is going to be so messy. Bless you. And if every other time how I was hearing the Lord was just kind of a tugging in my spirit, this time it was almost audible when he said, messy, yes, redemption usually is. I am here tonight because I believe that the love that he gave first deserves a response. I am here tonight because I believe that oneness is how the world will know. I'm here tonight because I believe that one of the most valuable things that Jesus bought with his death is unlikely love. I'm here tonight because I believe in a gospel that restores the broken and bears the heavy. I'm here tonight because I believe there is something special. There is something exceptional. Frankly, there is something called about Bryan College Station to be ground zero for revival. I'm here tonight because I think we are able to sit knee to knee with one another, to get closer to story in a closet, if you will. I'm here tonight because I believe this place, our place, is a place of redemption and forgiveness and reconciliation. I'm here tonight because I believe that we uniquely can do this, and Jesus showed us how to do it with his new way. Let's do this, church. I hope you hear something tonight that lets you know you are loved and helps you love one another. Welcome to Center Saint Sister. So 
Dave Ragitz and Valerie Delgado and David Light are our worship leaders tonight, and they are from Prince of Peace Catholic Church in Houston, which is a home away from home for me. And absolutely, some of my deepest prayer experience have been led by these two humble servants. So thank you so much, you three. It's in my notes, you two. Um, God is always beautiful, but holy smokes, he is so beautiful through you. This is why sharing gifts is important. Let's welcome them back to the stage and praise the Lord together. Why don't you guys stand with me? Come, Holy Spirit. We welcome you here. Holy Spirit, fall on us. Bye. 
joked that worshiping with Dave and Valerie make me feel I've been, like I'm in worship Olympics. Thank you so much, you two. It's such a sweet thing to encounter the Lord um, that way. So um, the very first time that I heard Jennifer Cumberbatch teach, which was that you are, how many of us here love you are? Yes. Um, I legit took off my shoes because I felt like I was on holy ground. And um, she delivered truth with such authority that I simply had to go find her, which is out of my character. But when I, when I got to her, there's this thing that I do with my kids, and it's usually when I'm at a loss for words or when I really want to convey something to them in a, in a very heavenly way. I, I grab them by the head, and I look at them very hard in the eyes so that they know that I mean it, and I put a cross on their forehead because it's all I can do. And I didn't spend any time thinking about if this would be weird um, <laughs> until I was touching Jennifer's forehead, which was completely sweaty, which tripled my love for her. Um, but I, and, and, and she smiled wide. She looked right back into my eyes and she smiled wide and she threw her arms out and she said, I receive, I receive. Jennifer Cumberbatch is a mentor of mine. She is mighty and humble. Isn't that such a Christ-like combination? to be mighty and humble. Um, without platitudes or sugarcoating, she delivers the truth. She is a gifted communicator who loves freely and cares deeply about pointing other people to the cross where true freedom is found. Get ready to receive, receive. Please welcome one of my very favorite teachers, Jennifer Cumberbatch. I know you're gonna need room. So I'm trying to make this long for you. <laughs> okay. Here, look. I'll do this. And then you do that. Oh, don't you just love her? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> she sent me this prayer today that just said, be free and love people. And, and that just took me. Hi, sweetheart. How are you? <laughs> so glad to see you. Uh, and that just took me out of performance mode. You know, I, I just love Jesus, and I love the body of Christ. Do you understand that we are the reincarnation of the incarnate one? It is through us that God loves the world. You, you, you realize that that's, that's how this whole thing began. God so loved the world. God so loved. We weren't the church yet. Right. We were sinners right. caught inextricably in the cycle of sin and death and misery. And God said, God made the first move. God made the first move towards us. But it was out of God's own love and his character for the whole wide world. I just love the way Allison opened us up because she said two things. And I, I had almost an epiphany about this like a month or so ago. The Lord woke me up and, and I, fe I felt like the Holy Spirit said to me, don't look to the left or the right. I was like, okay, what, what's on my right? <laughs> You know, what's going on here? Don't look to the left or the right. And I was like, I know Joshua, okay? Don't look to the left or the right. But 
the Lord was saying to me, in essence, what Allison said to us tonight. Don't look to the liberal. Don't live, look to the conservative. Don't live to the, look to anything else but me and my word incarnate. I, I want to tell you all this. This is a message for the church tonight. Don't look to the left or the right because you're going to get caught off balance if you're swinging your head both ways. Don't only meditate on my word day and night. And in it, you will find good success. You know, there's a definition of a success that has nothing to do with what's good. It's about accumulation. It's about power plays. But this is good success. And the song we just re read brings me back to the beginning when there was darkness and there was chaos and there was destruction and there was everything was void. It was empty. And God spoke into the darkness and said, let there be light. And this, this profound interjection into darkness and chaos and void created the world we live in. It created good of everything. And God said, that's good. That's good. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. Mm, that's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. That was the intent of a good God. There is none good but God. When you look at the essence of our being, there is none to the core who is good but God. And therefore, if we are imitators of Christ, even as Christ says, I don't do anything unless I see the Father do it. If you have seen the Father, you've, you've seen me. You, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I do what the Father commands me to do. And we are the workmanship of God. Listen to me. When, when, when God created human beings or earthlings, God created them out of the earth, breathed into them the breath of life, the essence of the Holy Spirit, th that pneuma, that life, came to life. And then, and God said that was good. The only thing he said it was, wasn't good was that man or the, the first earthling be alone. And then he created woman. And then he said, oh, that's real good. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's double, 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 double good. And when sin entered the world, there was a destruction of good. But even in the curse, even in judgment, there was redemption. Because in the, this, the prophetic word of God, and I'm, I'm taking you back to this because I want, you to, I want to work you up to where we are today talking about race. Even in the curse, there was redemption. The seed of the woman, biology 101, the woman does not carry the seed, just in case you guys didn't know. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. The entry of sin and darkness and disobedience came through the, the serpent. That was the prophecy of the virgin birth. All along, God has had a plan to destroy the works of the enemy and to bring about good. So the scripture says we are God's workmanship. Oh, listen to me. We are God's workmanship. That means it's the same way God created uh, Adam out of the dust 
and out of the clay, the red earth, and the same way he took the whole side of Adam and constructed or banad or built up or added to the woman to create someone corresponding in power and authority to rule and have dominion over the earth. The same way in Christ Jesus, whoo, hallelujah, we are recreated, hallelujah, we are the workmanship of, of God, and we are created to do good works. Do you hear me? We're created to do good. We're, we are co-laborers with Christ. Oh, my God. And we are co-laborers with Christ, and we labor together to restore the earth back to good. That, that, is, the, that is the job. That is the J-O-B of the body of Christ. We are the workmanship of God created. Listen to this. We're remade in Christ Jesus. You get it? We were all aliens. We were all estranged from God. We were all blocked from the goodness of God by sin, whether it was our personal sin or the sin of the world in general. We live in a fallen world. But we were recreated into a new species. Woo, that's what it means when it says in Christ Jesus we are new creatures. This is a genus of humanity that the world has never, ever seen. This is a new kind of earthling. This is, we are not mere humans. We are endowed with the Holy Spirit, and we are called to do good works, which God ordained from the very beginning. That's a hallelujah, just in case you didn't know it. We were created and recreated in Christ to do good works. So why are you here tonight? Y'all, any, any particular reason? <laughs> Allison has built this space so that we can talk about race. I didn't mean that for you. I'm a rapper. She has built this space to talk about race. Hey, my kids would be so embarrassed right now. <laughs> Mom, please, please, stop, stop. So what, what in this discussion reflects what I just said, which God has ordained from the very beginning? Turn with me. Oh, well, I guess this isn't a formal setting unless you got it on, on, unless you got it on your iPad or your uh, iPhone or your Samsung, more, more succinctly. <laughs> This is a, a linchpin scripture for me. What did I do with my, oh, here, here it is. I, I want you to read with me or listen to me. So Paul has just come from uh, Thessalonica, and they have uh, expounded the gospel, and they were kicked, actually, they were dragged out of the synagogue. And then he goes to, uh, to Athens. And it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue and with the Jews and the devout people and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicureans and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Now, that babbler is it's, it's a person who makes their living by just picking up scraps. It's like a person who would pick up aluminum cans. So he's babbling. He's picking up philosophy from here and there, and he's going into this, this marketplace where something new, they were enamored with some new philosophy coming down the line. 
May we know that th what this new teaching is that you're presenting. Ultimately, he quotes from their poets to uh, be culturally relevant uh, in, in, in displaying the gospel. And ultimately, he says, I see you have an inscription, an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything, everything in it. He who is Lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortars life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth. The King James says from one blood. He allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of their places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from one of them. In, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we too are his offspring. So how do we deal with that revelation of God as creator of all humankind and having made all humankind from one blood, and we're dealing with the issue of race. Revelation says from every what? Tribe, every tongue, every nation. What is that, what's that got to do with race? And how does it divide us as the body of Christ, the incarnate Christ in the world with hands and feet of God going about doing good? Well, I would suggest to you, number one, we've been adopted into the beloved. I, I, I know one, one of my sisters who's Jewish by birth, but most of us are Gentiles. Like, you're a Gentile, I'm a Gentile, you a Gentile, you a Gentile, you a Gentile, here they all, Gentiles. We were estranged from God because we were not of the Jewish people, right? So Paul comes onto the scene and he says, this is a gospel that is for all nations because ultimately God created everyone out of the same blood, out of the same earth, out of the same ancestry. So what's race got to do with it? So for our purposes here tonight, I'm gonna to define race and you can use it in a, as a, use any other definition you want to after you leave here. But this is what we're going to talk about. Okay, so ethnicity has to do with culture and, and country of origin and all of that good stuff. Language, tradition, etc. Race is a socio-political construct. It's imaginary. Okay, and it was used in the context to distinguish people for the purposes of greed. Uh, you can agree with me, disagree with me, but right here, I got the mic, okay? <laughs> I mean, I lovingly, I have the mic. Um, so when we look at race in that way, we understand that we are, there's a certain duality to our existence. We are both citizens of the kingdom of God, 
and citizens of the earth. That's what the scripture means when the scripture says we are in the world, but we're not of it. We live in a parallel universe. Oh, oh my God. While God is building the kingdom of, of heaven, we are, we are the conduits through which God says, my kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I would suggest to you that when we sanctify our lives unto God to do the good works, to restore the earth back to good, because evidently God loves God's self some world. When we sanctify, there is no division between secular and sacred. When I walk into the room in the power of the Holy Ghost, instantly it, the, the secular becomes sacred because I have uh, sanctified that space to the Lord my God. So we, we live in this duality. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. I am a black woman. That's the, well, my family debates that sometimes. <laughs> I, but I am a black woman. Uh, I firmly uh, uh, a state, and I live in a black body. But my greatest identity is of the party of Christ. Amen. So, you know, I just found out recently that word Christian came from the believers in Antioch because they saw such an incredible difference in these people that were turning the world upside down. They were major disruptors. They were, they were turning every idea that, they, that people had about God and about being in communion with God, turning it on their heads. They saw something different, and they called them, just like we call the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, they call, and they called the Herodian Party, those people who were under Herod's rule, and as Herod prospered, they prospered. They called them the Party of Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that is my strongest point of identification. But because I live in this duality, you and I live in this duality, I, I am a, a product of and must be, endure the construct of race. Okay? So race is not ethnicity. Race is physical features. But we live in this treasure, right? Your treasure looks white, your treasure, my treasure looks black, okay? And there are certain things in our dual state, because not only are we uh, citizens of the world, we are specifically citizens of the United States of America. And there are so many things about that that make us happy and, 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 and grateful to God. And there are so many things, but there, America was born with a birth defect. All while we were saying, we're going to create a better and more perfect union, and all the men are created equal. <laughs> That's another conversation. And, and they have inalienable rights that were given to them by God, and all while we were penning it. I mean, the ink wasn't even dry yet. And Thomas Jefferson had 187 slaves and nine babies by Sally Hemsley, Hemingsley, who was a slave who did not have consent. All while we're creating this perfect union, we have 
allowed ourselves to have slavery. Now, slavery began, granted, in the United States with indentured servants also. There were Anglo, meaning English, indentured servants who came over to the United States on the Mayflower and all those ships that came over because they were in debt and they had to work off their debt. That is the general sense that we get about slavery. You know, you're either captured or you're in debt or whatever. Well, these white indentured servants started mingling with black African slaves and caused uprisings. And the founding fathers, I don't think the founding mothers had a lot to do with it or say so out loud, but they started saying, we've got to construct something that makes a distinction between indentured servants and slaves. And we've got to construct something that allows us to conceive sin based on lust that when it's full born presents as death. That's what greed is. That's what hunger for power and status is. It's not of the light. It's not of the good. It is a lust for power and greed, which is really ridiculous in light of the fact that we were given all things to enjoy freely. We, as dual citizens, we live in a culture of plenty. There, it's not going to run out. I don't care what everybody's saying to you. We, yes, we're called to be good stewards of everything we've been given, but we don't have to fight and scrap for things. There is plenty for everyone. The psalmist says, Lord, give me my portion. Don't give me too much that I might forget you, and don't give me too little that I might curse you, but give me my portion. Let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, there's enough for everybody. But the, the original ideology of the enemy was, I will ascend. And I've got to have somebody that I'm ruling over. And I've got to create a panic about resources. So this distinction was made about race, which had nothing to do with ethnicity or tribe or language, which is where we see in the, in the culmination of things. But it was based on if you are black. There's a distinction. We, you, you, your, your hair is nappy, your uh, nose looks a certain way, and your, the color of your skin is black. You are distinguishable. And all men are created equal, but some men are created more equal than others. And so we developed this construct that uh, designates a, a permanent group of people, permanently relegates them to either being subhuman or uh, not quite up to par with white humans. This is, is getting hot in here. It's getting hot in here. This is, the, this is the truth about how we got to where we are. So if you are only three-fifths of a human being, I don't have to respect your identity, your purpose, your God-breathed destiny. I can rule over you and, and pretend that it's only because 
you are subhuman and that you really need somebody to rule over you and you need God, that kind of guidance and really you're happy because you descended from a nation of savages. Everybody with me? I didn't leave, leave anybody, okay? Where the truth is, who came first, Cornelius or the Ethiopian eunuch? So this is how we got where we are. And we developed amendments that said, you know, people should have voting rights and that there should be no more slavery. But then we had to face the lie that we've been telling ourselves about people being subhuman. And I don't know if any of you are familiar with Amistad. So there was an African group of men who had been captured from Sierra Leone and they were on their way to uh, America to be slaves and they mutinied. They took over the ship and killed the whole crew. But, and they were trying to turn it back around to get to Sierra Leone, but they ended up um, on the East Coast. And they were put on trial and John Quincy Adams, who was one of the presidents, early presidents, defended them. And one of the things that he says about them is that human beings were not meant to be subordinate one to another. Human beings were meant to be free and under the grace of God. And one of the pivotal statements that he makes in, in the movie, I, I don't know if there's a book, but he says, he says, if there need be a civil war, let it come. It will be the last battle of the Revolutionary War. And that's what happened with the Civil War. So slaves are free, right? But they're still distinguishable, right? So it's very easily, easy to economically and educationally and health-wise segregate them from the resources and the opportunities. During Reconstruction, this started to emerge. What happened also during Reconstruction? The emergence of white supremacy and the KKK and the, and the pseudoscience around the inferiority of black people. Now, it, am, I, am I getting too hot here? Because so, so when we hear words like reclaiming our heritage or making America great again or uh, Mind you, we are talking about a bunch of Gentiles for whom there is a distinction by this made-up construct about the level of humanity that belongs to people who look like me. They are, they are code words that are meant to strike fear in our hearts about the fact that there's not enough. There's not enough respect, there's not enough power, there's not enough money, there's not enough earth, there's not enough food, there's not enough oil. But these are constructs that were born of sin. Greed and, and selfish ambition are indications of the old man and the flesh. And so you may say, well, what's that got to do with me? Are we complicit? Are we complicit by our silence? Are we complicit by our vote? When we say, I'm not a racist, 
I like black people. I have four black friends. I, I, I love Beyonce. <laughs> that that, that Jay-Z, ooh, you know? Uh, no, uh, when we, are we complicit when we sit in silence when, see, here's the definition of racism. It's structures and processes that give one group access to resources and opportunities while denying another group that same access. That's racism. And racism with power, government, health care, uh, education, et cetera, is systemic racism. Now, we all have bias, you know? We all, we all have bias, and, and, and it's a way of survival in a, in a, from a certain extent. It's a way of saying, you know, I look at that red plant, or I look at the stripes on that uh, snake, and I stereotype it. I put it in one category that says poisonous, that says avoid, etc. But bias doesn't have to do with creating structures and processes that deny people opportunity and resources. So I need, to, I need you to ask all the people that live in white bodies, I need you to ask yourself a question tonight. Uh, you can't help it you live in a white body any more than I can help it that I live in a black body. But he, it's by design, people, to reflect the greatness and the multiplicity and the glorious nature of God who created us in God's own image. And it's not until we start coming up with these constructs that say you deserve more than I deserve that it becomes a problem. Okay, so I need you to ask yourself a question. I need you to write it down in your mind or pretend you're writing it on paper or whatever. How has race impacted my life? Now, you live in a black body, as far as I can see. You don't have to ask that question. <laughs> you don't have to answer that question. But if you live in a white body, I want you to think about how race. Now, remember, we said we're not talking about ethnicity. We're not talking about tradition or culture. We're talking about just black, white, brown, indigenous. Okay, how has race impacted your life? And I would say to you, and this is by experience, and obviously I haven't had that much experience similar or exactly the same as everybody in this room, but I would say to you that people who live in black bodies do not have to ask that question. They don't have to ask it, they don't have to answer it because their race enters the room before they do. Now, you could say, now, I'm colorblind. I don't see color. This is a post-racial generation. I mean, after all, Cousin Susie has a little black kid because she's married to that black guy who's from New York. And, you know, we, this is a post-racial situation here. And I'm saying, you lying. Every single day we are dealing with structures and processes that are built to eliminate access to uh, resources and opportunities based on race. 
And I'm saying it's time to burn it down. The body of Christ is the only place where we can be diverse but unified. It's, it's the only place on earth. And when we're talking about this duality, it is, it is incumbent upon us to take the power of God into where we live, work, and play. This whole understanding about race has got to be local, it's got to be personal, it's got to be in real time. No more abstractions. This has got to be pointed. We are a weapon in the hand of God. And I, I, I've never shot a gun. There may be some people here that have shot a gun. But my understanding is if you want to hit a target, you've got to aim for it, right? <laughs> and it would be just like me not to, to include that process. But we have got to be proactive and very, very um, intentional about burning down this construct of race and burning down its implications for the world. You know why? Because God so loved the world. That's why Jesus came, because Jesus loved the world. And I'm just fool enough to believe that we are created to do good works and that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Yes. So what, what am I talking about? What are you talking about, Jennifer? I'm talking about, um, I can't, I, I don't know why I thought I could sit down on this stage. <laughs> I, I mean, I know I'm not a mere human, but that, that ain't going to happen. It starts with not being complicit by your silence. It starts with you using your prophetic voice to say, this is destructive to unity. It starts by you saying, Lord, I present my body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto you. It's just my reasonable portion. It starts when you're wor working with a, a person that lives in a black body or a body of color and your job, and you know that they've been passed over and passed over and passed over. It starts with you saying, hey, wait a minute. This is not equitable. You know, there's all this controversy about people adopting, white people adopting black children. You hear me? You heard me. Okay. And, and here's what I, I have to say about that. Yes, there are some concerns. One of the concerns is you make sure that you have reciprocal, on-par relationships with other black people before you try to raise in a black child in America. I, that's my charge to you. The other thing that I have to say about that is black people shut up, okay, about this and that, and I'm not sure about this. So I can, I can swing both ways. I can chastise you, and I can chastise them. <laughs> shut up, because this is God evening the score. This is God allocating resources where they've been denied previously. So shut your mouth and, and, and get in that person's life so that you can be a, a, a role model and a positive input in that life. It starts by us as the church 
understanding that the gospel is both transcendent and transformational. Uh, I love the quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer that says that Christ, uh, I can hardly even say it without crying, Christ transcends our otherness. He doesn't translate it. He brings us up above it. And the gospel is transcendent. It takes us into another mindset. It takes us on another plane. It takes us into the heaven, oh, the heavenlies, where we are seated with Christ Jesus in heavenly places, and we have an inheritance that is stored up for us. Oh, my God, it takes us into the place of grace. It takes us into the place of love. Oh, my God, Christ transcends our otherness. But in the same weight that the gospel is transcendent, it is also transformational. And that means that the gospel makes changes in real time in the earth. Don't let me hear out your mouth one more time. All we got to do is preach the gospel. No, you got to live the gospel. Because men will see your good works and glorify your father, which is in heaven. In Christ, there is neither Greek nor Jew nor male nor female, amen? But in, uh, but in Christ is the fullness of God expressed. Christ has the express image of God, the stamped image of God. He is the zenith of the glory of God. And when that comes through the body of Christ, the world has got to change. It has to change. It has no choice. Because it's under the jurisdiction of Jesus. The, the table of the Lord is welcome to whosoever will. Amen? And is not determined by race, which is an imaginary penny anyway. This is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. With the power of the Lord. Oh, this is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. With the power of the Lord. Oh, it may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. Oh, yeah, the enemy is great. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. Well, it kind of looks like I'm engagement. You know, we don't heal in isolation. We heal in community. I, I, I speak the power of God and grace and joy and patience and endurance. And I breathe on you the breath of the Holy Spirit for limitless possibilities. In the name of Jesus, who is God's only Christ, who has the Holy Spirit without measure, who is the fullness of God. 
Thank you, Jennifer. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in a place in my spirituality um, where I don't want to be right anymore. I just want to be better, and um, particularly regarding race. So we might be a little uncomfortable right now. I know for me, um, in my white body, I'm not used to coming to a table with nothing to say. And it's important to just listen and learn. And nobody challenges me to be... Um, a challenging prophet instead of an accommodating minister better than Jennifer Cumberbatch. We're called to those awkward in-between places, and she does that so well. Thank you so much. Pope uh, John Paul II, there's a quote um, that says that dialogue is the new charity, he said. Did I get that right, Heidi? Thanks. And I just, I think that's such a powerful thing. Can we commit to dialogue? Dialogue is the new charity. Um, we have reached the panel portion of our event. Do y'all need to stand up while I introduce people? How are y'all doing? Um, okay, so um, as I prayed about who might lead us tonight, this potentially risky thing, God brought to mind people who were already publicly doing this, and I admired the way that they were facilitating discussions with a lot of respect for people with Imago Day. They were, even if they were disagreeing, they were doing so um, with such respect. So our first panelist is a high school classmate of mine, Marcus Lloyd. And Marcus wasn't just the kid in high school that everybody wanted to be friends with. He was the kid in high school that everybody actually was friends with. There's somebody here who can heartily agree to that. Thank you. Marcus has always been inclusive, so it's no surprise to me that as an adult, he's a community catalyst for church unity and reconciliation. He leads church reconciliation ministry called Threaded. He's a published writer, professional singer, actor, director, a very gifted speaker, and a wise teacher and a mentor of mine. Please welcome Marcus Lloyd. All right, next is Ryan Pale. Ryan is a community outreach pastor. The first time I heard him teach, I hit the floor. It looked like this. My mouth was agape. I was amazed. He's passionate about what it means to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. Ryan doesn't shy away from having his mind stretched, his heart transformed, or his faith matured by Christ continually making him new. A dear friend and someone I'm so proud to walk with. Please welcome Ryan. Next is Melissa Silva. Melissa Silva is a woman who brightens up every room she walks into. Through her work with Be the Bridge, Bryan College Station, important conversation and events have unfolded to bring unity and understanding of the gospel and race. Melissa often walks in the role of leader and facilitator, and she does so with boldness and grace. She helps coach classroom teachers on how to foster positive relationships with students while dignifying the classroom. She also works as a Noonday Ambassador which empowers women around the world. To know her is to know the joy of the Lord. She pushes back darkness wherever she sees it. Please welcome Melissa Silva. And lastly, Jennifer Cumberbatch, who you're likely still trying to get yourself together after hearing. Please welcome Jennifer. I think I'm gonna sit in the middle of this couch right here, but I have to give you this. All right, panelists, remember to talk right into your mic. Guys, please feel free. Even though we're recording, you can um, go to the bathroom. You can get refills. Do your thing. Be comfortable. Be free. All right. So um, there is... Hi. 
Yay! Okay, so there's no easy way to have a conversation about race, and there's a lot of reasons for that. We come at race from different perspectives. We all have different experiences. We have attachments to words that make us feel things. And oftentimes those words are misused um, and we, we use them wrongly and so then we end up miscommunicating. Um, many of our experiences trying to discuss race simply haven't been pleasant. And so we're insecure and we're defensive and we've likely been hurt. So here we go. Right? <laughs> what, what I love about intro. this group is that we've made a commitment to one another and to God to show up committed and kind. And so um, I thought the best place to start tonight might just be with our own personal experiences about race. Um, so there are four questions, audience, just so you know, so you can kind of gauge us. Um, number one, Eric Mason wrote in his book, Woke Church, and he says that there are two days. Oh, thank you, boyfriend. So nice. Thank you. Um, there are two days that every person of color can identify. And it's the day they realized that they were a person of color and the day that they realized that that wasn't a good thing, that that might be a problem. Um, do you agree that this awareness is burned into the memories of every person of color? Is that true for you? And if it is true for you, do you mind sharing with us your experience? Who wants to lead us off on that one? No yeah, I'll jump. I'll jump in just because I'll jump in. Uh, yeah, you Jumper. know it's it's funny. I don't I don't know if every person of color has that burned into their. You don't speak for everyone. I don't speak for everyone. I'm gonna do my best to just speak for me, uh, which is always difficult. But I do have that burned into my my memory. Uh, I remember it was um, I was a, I was about seven years old. It was second grade, I guess. And uh, I was going, uh, to, I was in a, it was in a predominantly white school. There was just very few of us there. I think it was me and my brother and my sister who were the black people there. And Kendra may have been there as well, I think. Uh, but no, we, uh, we were, I was in the line going to get lunch in the cafeteria like you lined up. And I was talking to a friend of mine next to me. And I turned around and there was this kid there uh, and his name was Eric. He was a redheaded kid, had freckles, always wore this jacket. And he looked at me and he had this look and he just looked at me, and for whatever, he goes, you nigger. And look, I don't think I had ever heard that word before, or at least nobody had ever talked to me about that word. But it was something in the way that he said it, and the way that he looked at me, that I thought, this is for me specifically. This is, there's nobody else here. This is for me, and it has to do with the way that I am different from my friends, which I had noticed, but I hadn't really made a big deal about. Uh, and, uh, and my response wasn't good. Because I punched him uh, from that point. I have since gotten much more stamina around race issues, and so I can, you're, it's so, you know, I can do better. But, uh, but then my parents had to kind of sit me down and kind of give me the talk of explaining, okay, here's what your life is potentially going to be like in this school. So, yeah, that was my first memory of it. Wow. Anyone else? I feel like I have kind of an interesting story um, because, and I was sharing with them upstairs. Um, when I grew up, I was actually, I grew up in South Texas, which is the majority, like, it's like literally like one day I took a wrong turn somewhere and I was like, oh, there's the International Bridge for Mexico. There's Mexico. So that's how close I was to Mexico. Um, and so I grew up as a majority within the context of where um, I lived and um, lived until I was, until I went to college. Anyways, so I was already always around people that looked like me, but it was kind of this weird reality where I would learn 
history, and all the people in the history books were white. And I actually didn't have a teacher who looked like me, who is Latina, who, until third grade. And so, so much of the people of influence in my life did not look like me. And so it was like this weird reality where I just kind of internalized, oh, maybe, maybe people like me don't contribute to things and we're just dumb. Like we're not, we're not represented in these spaces. And so I internalized that at a young age of just like, I'm just probably just not smart. Um, but it's funny because I didn't feel shame about it. It just kind of became my normal. Um, and it wasn't until I went off to college and I was a part of a sociocultural influences on learning class. And I had just moved to Austin. And so it was the first time that I was outside of the Valley, which is what we call South Texas. Um, and I was like, I'm I'm different, like I'm different. Like now all of a sudden I was no longer part of the majority of people. Um, I was, I definitely felt like a minority. Um, and so I was still kind of processing all of those things. And so in this classroom when the assignment was, I want you to draw a picture of what you think or how you think people view you as or something. So I was like, okay. At that point, I was like, well, the people who look like me are um, working really hard and they are serving food to us in the cafeteria or they are cleaning up um, after us and all those things. And so I just, so I drew that. I, I drew that as my assignment of just like, this is how I think people view me. And I got to class and everyone else had drawn it and like interpreted the assignment of just like, oh, I'm a baseball player. That's how people view me. Um, oh, I'm, I like um, to watch football. That's how people view me. And I remember for the first time just feeling such shame and it reinforced even just what I thought about myself that I was dumb because I um, misinterpreted that assignment. Um, and so I think what was hard, even as I've reflected now in that season of my life, I never had the language to process all of those things. And so I just had internalized all of it and just lived it out as if it was true. Um, and it wasn't until I worked with a college campus ministry that was contextualized in reaching Hispanic college students that I began to have the language to process through some of those things that I had just unintentionally suppressed because it just was my normal. And so... That's just my story. As an adult, I'm, I'm listening to that loving your tender young heart who took that assignment to such a deep level. I, I feel like this is represented on the Enneagram somewhere. <laughs> 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 what about you, Jennifer? Well, um, so my uncles came back from World War II. Uh, I said that right, didn't I? World, World War II. Um, and they had two of my great uncles had married white women. And there were, um, you know, were, were, I usually say of European descent, but um, we're talking about race tonight. And so, um, so I wasn't a stranger to white people. And my parents at a very early age um, decided to live in a place, it was called Parktown, it was in Cincinnati. And it was during the 60s. And so people of various ethnicities and uh, race intentionally lived in this city, in this uh, little village, so to speak, to have cultural exchange. So I never, 
out of those experiences, we always went to congregations that were predominantly white and we were the only black people. Uh, at one point, my parents were asked the question, well, don't you feel like you'd be more comfortable um, worshiping at a black church or at a church where the majority was black? So anyway, I said all of that to say that I never really perceived myself as different until my senior year in high school. And I had worked really, really hard um, to get some contact lenses because my glasses are like Coke bottles, you know, I mean, they're really thick. And I was at, I was in DC, we lived in DC, and um, I was at a CVS or a drugstore that was it, near Wisconsin Ave and um, Military Road. And, um, and I was trying to get sunglasses because the contacts make you very sensitive to light. And I couldn't decide which one I was gonna get, so I took two up to the register and I was gonna make my final decision. And this guy jumped out of nowhere. That's enough, that's enough. I'm so sick of you and your brothers and sisters. Oh, I have two brothers and two sisters. So I was like, how do you know them? You know, uh, I'm so sick of you. Um, yeah. They come in all the time. They come in all the time. And so I'm so sick of you and your brothers and sisters ripping us off. That's it, that's it. Just leave. I was mortified. And I was so, and when I get angry, I start crying. And I was shaking, I was crying, and that is the, the first time that was burned in my consciousness. You're not only different, but you're treated differently based on how you look. So. Sorry, that happened. Um, and look, Allison, that's such a, I love that you're saying that, like that's such a, that visceral response is, it, when I've had this conversation with others, that has been the response, it's this, I don't know if you've ever experienced injustice before, but it is, it is so debilitating. It like is. it turns you, it, it I do the same. When it happened to me, I remember that happened to me several times. Like you just turn into the shaking, crying, and then you feel like worse. I, I know. Because you you're like, powerless. you feel powerless. Yeah. yeah. yeah so. But, I, but my mother is Sylvia Russo. All right. And I went home and told her. Oh. And she marched me back up to that store. Oh. And wanted that man's badge number and yeah. called his the head of his company to report him. So that was how I didn't I felt different and but I didn't feel powerless yeah. after that. Mm. Yeah. That's good. Um, understanding racism has, as smog has really helped me as, as a white person um, separate racism from niceness. Um, so it's there and it's real and we breathe it in and we might not even know it and it causes harm. And so smog, the idea of racism as smog kind of dismantles the, well, if you're nice, you can't be a racist because we can be so quick to remove ourselves from sin, right? Um, and I was actually lucky enough to be raised in a very diverse junior high in high school or I'm sorry, um, elementary and junior high, but we moved when I went to high school, and it was a tough time to move and make friends because there were three junior highs that fed into the high school, and so everyone just assumes that you're from the other junior high, but I wasn't, and um, making friends was tough, and a rumor started when people found out which junior high I really came from that I dated black guys, as if that were like a cardinal sin, and it spread like wildfire, and I, as, some, as someone who I would have said hadn't put much thought into race, felt this, this very dire urgency to put it out. Because I saw the belief of that rumor as something that could keep me from everything 
that I was trying to do socially starting over. And so it was imperative to me that the circles that I was trying to belong to not believe that. And I would have told you that I treat everyone the same and that race wasn't important to me. And yet this <laughs> was vitally important to me. So we have to confront those contradicting things, the things that we say with our mouths and the things that we hold in our hearts and then examine that discrepancy. And our generation was trying to do things better. We were absolutely trying to do things better. We could easily over music or sports or whatever but matters of the heart and dating that was something that was that that was that was off limits and and I have to say that that memory had gone unexamined until recently and and then when it came back that panic remembering that panic it came back vividly do you have anything right yeah um a lot of things. Um, one, thank you all so much. Um, gosh, even as late as it's been, as many years ago as it was, uh, to still share the story. Thank you uh, so much for sharing it and uh, educating us. Uh, there's a couple of things that um, uh, that I want to address. I, I hope there are people in here um, that are that are either um, uh, opposing the fact that racism is is an issue. Or, or maybe at the very best, curious about it to, to know more. I, I hope you're. I hope those people are here, or at least listening. Um, and one of the things uh, that that stood out to me as Marcus is talking, if there's anybody in here who thought, "Wow, he's articulate," um, that there's a couple of things that are being communicated there. So if we thought to ourselves, "Wow, he's very articulate," there's two things communicated. One. Um, we had such low expectations of him uh, to communicate the English language in a way that is receptive or engaging or compelling. That's one. The second thing is uh, that became a place where he had to ingratiate himself to us. He had to speak like us uh, for us to be able to respect him or really hear what he had to say. So it's communicating a couple of things. So I may not have been in the drugstore. I may not have been the redheaded kid that punched him in the face, but I still carry around these foggy ideas that still continue to kind of be little people that don't look like us, and we demand, in a sense, that they play by our rules so that he, they talk like us, that they abide by the rules that we set up all day long. It, it happens, I have 11-year-old twins now, and, and even still, um, there are, who are the bad kids at school, and who are known to be the bad kids at school? It's the, it's the children of color. So my kids aren't actively engaging in racism, there's just a collective um, worldview that happens even for fifth graders at school that we're having to constantly unlearn for ourselves and our kids as well. So it's all over the place, whether or not we're actively engaged in racism or not. It's just all over the place. Thank you, Ryan Pale. Um, engaging in conversation um, about race, white privilege, those words paired together often comes up. This is a consistent topic in the race discussion. And maybe it's hard to talk about because the term carries a little bit of a double whammy. People feel defensive hearing the word white because we're not used to being described by our race. Um, and then people feel defensive hearing the word privilege because it might suggest that your life has been easy when life is rarely easy, no matter your race. Um, so, panel, can we please talk about white privilege so maybe we can attempt to get underneath it. Jennifer, do you mind starting us off telling us a little bit about what white privilege is and isn't? Well, um, I, I really, you helped us by, um, by your interjection there when you talked about there's certain standards 
whereby we are uh, we label people competent or we label people um, deserve respect or uh, deserve uh, safety. Um, and it's usually by a standard that is not necessarily um, gracious to people of color. So it's by our standard we decide whether you are deserving of respect, whether you're deserving of safety, you know, are you human? Um, so it's white privilege is having the luxury of being the one who uh, makes those judgment statements. Mm -hmm. it, um, white privilege is having um, kind of a, the grace to live, move through life, not having to think about what color you are. Uh, white privilege is not just, you know, I can go to the CVS and find Band-Aids the same shade as my skin or stockings or, do they even sell those anymore? <laughs> um, or whatever, but it, it, it is having this ease of life that says, um, I, my wealth and my standing and my status in my community is based on cycles and cycles of me having the upper hand, me having um, opportunity, me having, you know, when we think about the GI Bill, that was not afforded to black people or people of color or uh, uh, indigenous people. people. Black people came back from World War II and had to fight America for the same thing that they were fighting for for Jewish people over in, in Europe. Uh, black people were redlined. So white privilege is being able to shop where you want, live where you want, uh, listen to the music you want to listen to, and not have to ever consider that there might be somebody that doesn't, can't bring their whole authentic self to that um, standard mm -hmm. of um, excellence or mm -hmm. ease or whatever. Um, my, my kids went to a South by Southwest deal where they rented, you listen to me, they paid money to have this venue for uh, a certain amount of time and the owners of the venue said, turned off their music at a certain time, and it was before the time that the rental was up. And it was kind of like, we don't want to um, drive off our other customers by that music. So th that's white privilege, to have power to decide what standard is the standard. The power of normal. The power of normal. Because. I have been born into a world where I feel like I belong, and belonging is no small thing. I mean, that is that is a big deal. The the power or the the power of normal and feeling like I belong. Yeah. And what I think what's hard with like normal is normal is not usually questioned, and it is always othering. And so um, neither of those things match or align like with the reality that we all are created in the image of God. Right. Can you elaborate it's, more on that? Uh, it's never questioned. Um, yes. 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 And so I think... It's othering. It, it, yes, yeah. definitely. And I think even just... It, it, I, I celebrate the experience that I have because I feel like it has given me such perspective in, in the way that I was born in um, 
South Texas because I am able to see the very distinct like difference. And so one of the things that is true even just of, um, I mean, this is like a very small example, but like in South Texas, whenever I leave and when I'm around a lot of other Hispanics, um, when you say bye, you say bye to you and you and you and you and everyone because we're so communal that we, um, that's just the norm. And when I left the South Texas, people were like, you're weird. What are you doing? Like, just say bye and be done. And so what I do, even something as small as saying bye to someone is questioned. Um, and I think even just the ways that I um, function um, can sometimes be questioned because it is always seen as different. Um, and I always have to, and it's hard to because um, I might look like I am not battling feeling different, but I think on the inside as a person of color, I'm always battling that. Even if I like feel really comfortable or like appear to feel really comfortable, um, there's always that battle. And I... I'm an educator, and so I'm gonna just ask y'all to like do something with me, okay? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm gonna put on my teacher self. <laughs> okay, so I went to, the, and it, it'll match with what you're saying too, um, of just like not being questioned. And so this was a really good activity that I did one time whenever we were talking about kind of changing our perspective. And so what I want everyone to do <laughs> is, can you just, whatever is your default way to cross your arms, could you cross them? Look, they're here for it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we have that some can... already crossed, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that is and can be defined as normal, right? That is, you did not even have to think about how you're going to cross your arms. You just crossed them. But not everyone is crossing them the same. You can't see it, but I can. So what I want you to do now is whatever arm is crossed, I want for you to switch it. How does that, so. <laughs> Can't do it. Can't do it. This so, is weird, I don't like it. <laughs> I am uncomfortable. <laughs> so the way that you feel when you are in that second position is typically how people of color feel and experience the world because we're always trying to operate within a default that is not our own. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I just need to also say that I had a little insecurity, but I was like, whatever, I'm just gonna go with it. <laughs> but. <laughs> Wait, why can't everybody it... just cross their arms like I do? <laughs> <laughs> why you gotta question it, Ryan? <laughs> it's not that hard. So as I was like processing this, even because the, the idea just literally came to me like five minutes ago. Um, but it's also like none of you guys could visibly, visibly probably looked uncomfortable. Maybe you did. But I think that that's also part of privilege and not having privilege is it's also easy to fake that you're comfortable. But internally, you're like 
questioning everything yourself because mm -hmm. you're like, am I weird? I don't know. I don't know what the standard is in yeah. this. And so I don't know. That's a tangent. That's so but. good. It is only through listening to people of color that I've realized that not everyone is able to move effortlessly through life without ever having to think about the color of their skin and what that might mean. It's so easy for white people to say that race, that race doesn't matter when their race doesn't matter. Anything? You too? Uh, you know, I was... Uh, I think if I'm if I'm listening, there's an aspect too that I'm still going. Yeah, but but I, again, I don't have privilege, right? Like I I don't I don't have the things you know what I mean that come along with that. And we're trying to get to the point of really breaking down some of the individuality that goes into it. I think that's what you guys are breaking breaking us into is most of the times we think very individualistically, right? Like okay, well this is the things about me, but what you're talking about, I think it's to be just highlighted is it's a corporate aspect. I think some sociologists, there's some great sociologists that have some great definitions that are academic around white, uh, white privilege, and they talk about this invisible, unearned advantages that are systematically given to people, uh, to group members of, white, of a white group, right? And that's important, right? That invisible, you can't really see it that much. It's, it's unearned, right? So it's, if we're walking down the street and they say, point to the white guy, you're, whether you like it or not, they're going to point to you, right? That's just unearned, right? There's advantages, and there's things, not just the fact that you can, you know, cross your arms, you feel comfortable, but there, there are other advantages that even as we play out some of these advantages, the way they're played out sometimes creates um, disparities and disadvantages in people who are not a part of the group membership, right? And we can think about it academically like that, but you can also think about it in the ways that we're talking about, which is very anecdotally, right? Thinking about, like, you mentioned you know, flesh-colored Band-Aids, right? Like, uh, it's, it, it, I think about it in the sense of, of, of me kind of going through the world, like, uh, you know, if, uh, when, I go and find, when I go and find a flesh-colored Band-Aid, it doesn't match my flesh. I never thought about that. Yeah, yeah, it, it, doesn't, was, it doesn't match your flesh. There was that video, though, recently, I think. Did y'all see it on Facebook where there was a black man who found a Band-Aid the same color as his skin, and he was like... See, this is the thing. He, he's so excited he had to make a video about it. <laughs> I know, I know! <laughs> But it, like, right, but it goes it goes in all those places, right? Like I, I there's a if as a as a person of color, like there is a special aisle where I find the foods and the spices that I eat every day. I've got to have a special aisle for that, yeah. right? I got to people change their names so that it makes it easier for other people to pronounce their names. Uh, I think about just even in my own personal life, like uh, you know, um, history and theology, right? When the, my history and my theology are an elective not a core curriculum, right? right. So, and, and, and even when I'm thinking about that history, when I look at the history of oppression in America, I look at it and go, oh my God, that would have been me. Yeah. See, white privilege doesn't have to necessarily do that because we live in a society that has been ultimately put around uh, and, and made to, to make sense for, for white people. And I, and I don't think it's a, a weird deal, right? Like, we understand how majority rules works, right? I mean, we live in a democracy. <laughs> a democracy is all about, okay, if, let's raise hands, and whoever has the majority, that's what we cater to. And if your majority is in the positions of power and is in the majority of the people who are going to be, you know, this policy is for, then it's going to be catered towards you. That's just how it works. And so that's where we have to just recognize that you can, you can drop anything in. If you have the majority, if you have the power, you're going to get those things catered towards you. And it's just hard to live in that space. And I think we just, it's been good to hear you guys, I think, articulate some of the ways in which 
it affects the people of color because it's easy to go, hey, here's what white privilege looks like, and people can go, no, but I think to hear and see that your brothers and sisters in Christ are experiencing life with an uncomfortability at all times, I'm hoping that as brothers and sisters we can recognize, oh, gosh, uh, that's got to be a difficult place and a difficult way, difficult way to live, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, very compelling and articulate. Oh, um, <laughs> I'm calling the NAACP. Right, yeah. Um, <laughs> So I, I'm, I'm putting on the, the objector hat now, and I, I do know there are people that, that when, they hear about, um, when they hear about having privileges, you're taking away, you're, it's taking away our own overcoming story. So, so I had, we all have an overcoming story where life was proven to be unfair. Um, and so in a sense, it feels, it feels uh, oh gosh, please don't hurt me, uh, people. It feels threatening to hear people take away my, my overcome story. Um, so, for, so to say, I think a common objection would be to say, well, I didn't have any privileges. I earned everything I had. Um, and so we almost have a scarcity of, uh, of life being difficult. So to somebody that has that, uh, that fear that you're taking away all my hard work, all my effort, all my, you name it. Um, how, how would you speak to that? How would you guys speak to that? Jesus did the same thing to you. You think you're going to go to heaven all by yourself in your own effort. And Jesus came and said, uh, no, you, are, you, you don't have an overcoming story. I am your overcoming story. You better That's say how that. It works, you better right? say that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I, I don't know. And what's and here's the deal too. Just as we're in a gospel moment here, <laughs> the, the idea of privilege is not uncommon in the Bible. We see it played out all the time, right? You see it in Joseph. He had a privilege. He was next to the, he was the second in command. He saved all the living world who needed food, right? You had uh, Moses, uh, the daughter of Pharaoh, who took in Moses with her privilege and saved him, and he ultimately saved the people of uh, uh, God's people. Esther is like the, the story of yeah. privilege, right? Like she's, are you, for such a time as this, will you use your privilege to save the people of God? But to go back to even your point, like Jesus is one of the, if we're trying to figure out, okay, let's just say privilege exists. If we're trying to figure out, like, what do we do with it, too? Like, Jesus is the story. Everything was catered to Jesus in the universe. All things were made not only, for him, uh, not only by him, but for him, right? So you talk about majority rules, it's always Jesus' stuff. He's sitting up there in his golden-gated community, right, just living up privilege. Like, mm, this is good. I got everything. You know what I mean? But what did he do? He left his gated community, took his messianic privilege, took it to the disenfranchised of the world, which is everybody in here, and he said, I'm not even going to look at the equality with God as something to be grasped. I'm going to make myself a servant and be amongst those who need to be served, and I'm going to share my privilege so that we can all be heirs of God as opposed to some... That is the God. But you... Hey, but you told me not to just preach the gospel, but I did, and it had a, an aspect of diversity in it, right? Like, it's, there's, so much, there's so much going on. Social justice is a Jesus story, right? Like, we just saw it. So this, this idea, I mean, sorry, you got, I don't know how I got to that, but you got me started on something. I was, start, I was talking about Jesus, and I just went off. I just went off on Jesus. Yes. It is. But I think it's just, it's just understanding, like, this, this concept of privilege is not a foreign ideal. We understand it, majority rules, we see it in the Bible, and we see how Jesus deals with it. So let's just, in, oh, let, me, let me put on my, my nice black man face real quick. So let's just recognize that it exists and that, 
I was pretty good, right? I do this every day. I do this every day. <laughs> Wasn't that good? Look, I've been practicing. I grew up and I know you how to do this. Actor. But no, look, I, I, everybody, it, it privileges something. If, if anybody had been put in the situation that white people were put in, if it had been flipped, black people would have done the same things that white people did. Latinos would have done the same things that white people did. It just happens mm -hmm. that in the history of our existence that white people had done, did the things in this country that they did. Mm -hmm. And now they have privilege. Mm -hmm. So the question becomes, what are you going to do with it? Absolutely. Are you going to sit up in the Golden Gate community? Yeah. Or are you going to follow Jesus right. and, and find ways to utilize your privilege for the good of mankind? Absolutely. Amen. Thank you, Marcus. Uh, number three, let's move on to multi-ethnic churches. Worshiping together is a diverse group of believers, all tribes, all tongues, and nations. It sounds like a beautiful witness to God's unity and diversity. And so the logical push seems to be towards multi-ethnic churches, yet not everyone agrees we as believers are called to this. In fact, some activists have even said it's racist. So multi-ethnic churches, a biblical mandate, a glimpse of heaven, too big of a sacrifice, or downright, downright, ra downright racism. <laughs> downright racism. What say you, panel? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, I had a visceral response to this question mm. um, because here, here's where I am, and, and I don't want to, yeah, I do. I started to say I don't want to project my opinion on everybody, but I do. Um, and the privilege is I've got the mic. <laughs> uh, how will you use your privilege yeah, today? How will I use my privilege? Um, so I think we're in a very crucial time where multi-ethnic congregations, now you notice I didn't use the word church. There is one church, okay? There are different traditions of worship. There are different emphases on the gospel, but there is one church. Good. So having said that, I'm waiting for my white brothers and sisters to put their resources into a, a congregation where the leadership is predominantly people of color, where they sit under the leadership and the ministry of people of color. That is what I think is being demanded of us in this era. And it will tear down all of the mythology around the inferiority of people of color if you can make the sacrifice to not have to lead all the time, if you can make the sacrifice where you, you can take your money and put your money where your mouth is, if you can build congregations that are under black, brown, and indigenous leadership, if you can allow yourself to sit back and say, Let's see what the vision is that God has given this man or this woman, and you can submit yourself to that vision. So I'm all for multi-ethnic uh, congregations, but I really believe we're in an era where we need to, the, the so eloquent, eloquent way of you describing the, yes, exactly, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus humbled himself. Right. He knew who he was. He was very firm in his identity. He didn't have to go rob God for that. But he 
allowed himself to be vulnerable. And that's what I'm asking of my brothers and sisters that live in white bodies. Amen. I, I'm, I'm, I always go to um, the book of Ephesians for, uh, for this conversation. Um, the church uh, in Ephesus, where Jews and Gentiles, like 600 rules set up for Jews to not be a Gentile. Mm -hmm. They had history, they had tradition, they had laws, they had systems. Everything was set up to say, I'm not a Gentile. Well, here comes Jesus onto the scene. These disciples now, not only do they not distance themselves anymore, but they sit across uh, the table from one another and they have a meal together. The, and the joining, where we read about in Ephesians 3, the joining of those two people groups together put on display the manifold wisdom of God. So it was that coming together that actually showed the glory of God into this world. It wasn't that one had to become like the other or the other had to become like the one. It was through their differences that they came together in a new family, in a new family and a new community. So that is our witness. That is our, as we think about our Christian, Christian witness in the world today, how does the gospel look beautiful in the world today? It, we're not defending evolution or the legitimacy of scripture. Those conversations are still uh, great and they're helpful. What we're having to, de to defend is in a love ethic um, where God puts on display a humbling um, of powerful people and an exalting of the downcast and downtrodden. So whatever role the church plays in that is going to put on the, the, the wisdom of God to display the wisdom of God or not. But that's what we're being called into. Another thing is for, for white people, and there's one or two of y'all in here, for, uh, for white people, <laughs> I, I know she mentioned that uh, to come unto, under the leadership of, uh, of people of color, that's hard to it's do. Communication hard. styles are very different. We sit in meetings and we're very businesslike and we're professional. Uh, if I care a lot about something, I'm going to do the research and I'm going to put it out a certain way. If you're in other contexts, if I care about something, my voice is going up. Well, for a white guy, I'm going to say, you need to chill. You need to calm down. It's getting out of control. So even little things like that take some, an insane amount of work for us to even put ourselves underneath the authority of people who talk different than us, not to mention all the other church stuff that goes on, but amen. Well, real quick, just, just because, because you're my brother, right? This, one of the things we also have to recognize, we also have to, even when we're, even when we're having this conversation and we're trying to explain it very well, right? We also have to be careful of the descriptors that we use to describe the differences, one of the things you articulated was, we're very calm, we're very professional. And, you know what I'm saying? So, it, what's that? It's a norm. Yeah, well, it's, it's a differentiation. Yes. And professional is a, that is a positive. Mm -hmm. So the opposite would be a negative. And so the idea is that I'm professional, and then this other group that coming in, coming in is going to do things that are not professional, then nobody's ever going to want to be underneath a person who's not professional. So again, it's to your point, it's the normativity of what the way we do things is the right way. It's the normal way and the right way. And that is what makes multi-ethnic churches so difficult to do. Uh, I am a fan of them, but I, I, I'm not going to say but. And I, I, I also see where I see my black brothers and sisters retreating from, from whatever those multi-ethnic churches are. They're retreating, right? Because it's so comfortable like to be like... I got to think about this. All week long, I am in an uncomfortable space. And look, I've got a, I'm a biracial marriage. Like, I'm always with white people, right? 
And so, but just thinking about regular, normal black people who have, you know, whatever that means. No, but black people who are in white spaces all the time, they're looking for that one hour, like that one hour, two hours, really, if you go to black church. Uh, the two hours, that's why they go longer at black church, because you're in a, you're with people, you're like, let's do this longer. Like, we ain't going to get to do this all week. Let's, let's go. Let's do this, right? Uh, and so it's so comfortable. Now, so, so the, the call is also to the black brothers and sisters, like, we have to also sacrifice our comfort space. And I will say, just as being a black man in a predominantly white world, man, that, that black comfort space is so refreshing and nourishing. But this is the deal, and you were saying it, right? Like, man, the world is watching. Yes. And, and God is, he is a diverse entity in and of himself. Right? Three persons, three different ways in which they do things. He, he's in diversity himself. When he created us, you mentioned, right, male and female, but he also created this gen genetic makeup and so that all the colors of the world can be represented. So he created with diversity. He called us to go and take the gospel to the world. And his vision at the end of our mission that he gives us to go make disciples of all nations is this, I always go to Revelation 7, is this multi-ethnic congregation, really the church sitting there worshiping together, tribes, tongues, and nations all there. Now, if we're a conduit, you said this, we're a conduit of, of heaven to earth, our, our multi-ethnic, multicultural church is an a easier, true reflection of Jesus than a homogenous church. Like, if they come into a homogenous church and they go, is this what heaven's going to be like? It's not. The multi-ethnic church is what it's going to be like. Yeah. But I understand, man, there's, there's, that, there's that desire to want to kind of release, to kind of push yourself into that, that real comfort zone. But that's not what Christ is calling us. The only reason we are still here is to tell people about Jesus and reflect who he is. And the best way to do that is in this multi-ethnic expression of what the true body of Christ really looks like. It is, it is what makes people desire Christ. I mean, real quick, I know you're, just real quick, I went to the Vatican. I'm making this point because you're Catholic. This, this We can find some ways to I was, engage. I was about to bring right. it up. Building yeah. bridges. We went, to the we went to the Vatican, went into the tapestry room. If you've ever been there, tapestry room, it's, you know, big cloth, all these things woven together. And the, 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 the pictures and the landscapes on these tapestries are just amazing. They're gorgeous. And when you look at them, you think they're paintings. They're so detailed, right? And I remember kind of leaning in and looking, and it wasn't until I got close that I saw the little threads. And I remember having this thought. I remember going... Who created this? Because it was beautiful and so finely woven. Who is the one who put this together? And I desire for the church to elicit the same response from all those who gaze upon it. Who, look at all the beautiful the colors used and all the different threads and the unity of the tightly woven church. Oh my God, who is the God who threaded these people together? And that's what I desire. And I think multi-ethnic churches help that. And, and it does. It sounds hard, but maybe it should be. I mean, aren't we called to die to ourselves? Isn't that the whole point? And so this could be a pointer to not everything being about us, you know, with, with comfort, our love language. And I do. I take a lot of pride in my global Catholic church um, that, that is universal, the word Catholic, which is what that means. But what I have found is that majority culture says that focusing on this issue is a distraction, and minority culture can feel like a token, and then it's pastors that end up, I asked this question for all y'all, because the, the Catholic Church is, is doing this globally, but, um, but then pastors end up bearing the brunt of that, 
And so it is hard, but we're called to die to ourselves. And so I love that vision of that tapestry. I, I could hear you describe that a million times over. Um, okay, let's move on to our last question. It says, racism and injustice in and of themselves are topics of grief. And there's a quote from Anjali Raya that says, what does grief crave? Lament. Grief craves lament. If people of color are asking, do you see what's going on here? And if majority culture is asking, what do I do? How does proper lament help us face crisis together? And what might it look like? I think we take our cues from uh, uh, the root from which we are a branch, meaning the uh, children of Israel. And their lament was, I think we put ourselves in a posture of our lament is, um, is first directed to God, and then we share in a communal lament. One of the things that counselors are finding about soldiers who have not just compassion fatigue, but moral injuries, is that they are healed when the community takes responsibility for their moral injury. When the, when the community says, we sent you out there mm. to do that. Wow. And, and so I think that duality, that our lament is to God who can heal us, but our lament is communal. We, we join together. It's a meeting place. It is a meeting place. Yeah. And, 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 we, and we posture ourselves so that at the lament, at the end of the lament, there is praise for an all-powerful God that can heal us. Yeah, I mean, I think without lament, there, there isn't healing. And so I think it's uncomfortable to, to lament. We don't like to be uncomfortable and sit in the, um, the messy and the hard. I think... I think maybe even some of you right now are thinking, okay, but what can I do? Like, what can I do tomorrow to fix this or to change this? And I think that there's such beauty of, of just sitting at the feet of Jesus um, with these things um, that maybe are on your heart and are on each of our hearts. We're all in process, um, and there's different waves that come within um, this journey of seeing the injustices that we've missed for so long. Um, I think that... I think it can even be seen in how we sometimes interpret scripture. Like I think of the story of the Good Samaritan. We, we don't ever stop and even just like focus on that. There were two people that like missed, like just kept going and missed what they saw. Like I, we do when we're like, oh, like don't be like them. But we always like elevate the story of, of the Good Samaritan and praise that part of the story. Jesus does say, go and, you know, go and do likewise, but there's, he also shared a more, more full picture of that story um, really instead of just, like, go and help. Let's focus on, like, we need to grieve that there were two people that came before, and, and we're not angry about that. We're like, oh, well, that's embarrassing, you know, like, or whatever. Like, we, we, the <laughs> way that on. we, yeah, we're moving on because, you know, there is someone that helped in the end, and that's the part of the story that we focus on. Um, and there is beauty in that, but the fuller picture of that story is to stop and recognize that we need to grieve the two people that 
that didn't do anything. It wasn't, yeah, they were like, you know, busy or whatever, however we describe why they didn't, but, but it's also just a part of the story. You mentioned that messy, and I, I, our culture isn't really here for that. I mean, biblical lament was dramatic, and it was loud, and it was meant to be done in public. I mean, half of the <coughs> psalms are lamenting psalms that were really meant to be read together, and, so, and we would really rather avoid all of the chaos that goes along um, with that. But, but healing space was made in, that, in, the, in doing that publicly. I, I'm, I'm curious. It's funny. I, I'm thinking through. Uh, there's a Key and Peele sketch where these white people uh, come up to black to Key and Peele and talk about how guilty they feel, and I'm sorry for slavery and all that stuff. What 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 is meaningful? So I, I lament is an attitude of our heart uh, is is grief that uh, you know, especially as, as white white people, because that's the conversation we're having. What does meaningful lament look like? Um, alongside Hispanic or uh, the black church, black people, um, what would be meaningful even as a demonstration? Obviously, it needs to come from the heart first, but w- what would that look like, would y'all, would y'all think? You know, um, there's a great book out by Sung Chan Ra called Prophetic Lament. You've probably read it, but he really describes laments as this funeral dirge. It's you know, when you go to a funeral, you're going there to cry. <laughs> you're going there to mourn, knowing that this, there's a dead body in the casket. It's not coming back. Mm-hmm. And when you think of the history of our country and really going further back than that, um, particularly the ideas of race and racism, there are a lot of dead bodies in caskets mm-hmm. that are not coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, the, and and, and, and there, is a, there is a misrepresentation of the church in there, too. Like God was made to look terrible through that. We were complicit with that. And so what we need to do, and this is hard. It's hard for me. I don't know how to do this because I'm so used to being in a, a society and a church that's all about triumphalism, if that's a thing, right? Like we, even, even on our day of lament, like Good Friday, we know we've got Easter. So we don't even, we lose like a day on lament, right? I, what would help, and, and this is what I see, my, my beautiful wife, who's white, um, several years ago when we started, when she kind of started down this journey, um, she watched this six-part series on the African-Americans, Many Roads to Cross. And then she just started watching these things. And, and now, if we're watching anything, you know what I mean, that has to do with some of the history, she is weeping <laughs> in this. Like, she is feeling the emotion of it and entering into the space with great tears and suffering and mourning and grieving. And those tears are like sal to me. Because it means you actually care about what happened. Yeah. And, and for her, she's, not, she's got a very visceral connection, right? She's thinking, my, again, my God, Marcus, if we existed 70 years prior, you might have been hanging from a tree for just talking to me. And here we are with two babies now, two boys that represent the reconciliation of the two enmities, the two people or the groups of enmity. And so I, for me, I don't, I think, and, and again, I'm doing personal right now. I don't want to hear the questions of, okay, what do I do now? Because it just, because <laughs> you weren't thinking that several years ago when this was happening. So let's just enter into a time where we go to God and we confess and we pray and we lament and then see what God says with that. Mm. And just in, can you just enter into that with real tears? Mm, that's good. Like, as in, like right now. Like, 
yes. go to Psalm 80 and enter into, I mean, this is, I mean. Will you lead us, so Jennifer? Can we, so somebody, can we pull it up? This is not just the dialogue, but um, Brian. I'm working on Psalm 80. Let's get that microphone. My so daughter was weeping the entire day. And she went to a, a high school that has a, a history of being inclusive, but she was the only black kid in her class. And she just wrote an email to all of her high school friends, and she said, why is your heart not breaking with mine? And that's what I think you were trying to communicate. You consider me a lifelong friend. Yeah. We have been through thick and thin together. And why am I the only one that can't get up out of bed yeah. because I am grieving, grieving so much? And her friends wrote her back and said, we didn't know where to place our grief. And you've given us an avenue to say, we want to lament with you. So. It, it is a practice. It is a, a, a vulnerable a vulnerability of saying, what, huh, what breaks the heart of God breaks my heart. Do you, do you not believe that God is grieving when another black man is shot down in the street like somebody's taking target practice? Do, like, the, like the soldiers who have had moral injury I, I want to see my white brothers and sisters say, we sent the police out to protect our neighborhoods and protect our wealth at the expense of my, my black brothers and sisters being killed. We are complicit when, when the only avenue we have is to send the police out. <sighs> where, where are the Algie Rousseaus who went in the middle of a gunfight and spoke peace? Where, where, where is my neighbor, like I was a neighbor, who heard, heard, heard an argument, did not call the police, but said, are you, so-and-so, are you okay? What can we do? Why is, we, we that's, that's what will move my heart, is when what breaks the heart of God begins to break our heart, and we, we take spiritually armed action as opposed to the resort of protecting our interests. Um, and, and when we are in, and just going back to that multi-ethnic church, one of the wonderful things about a true, um, well-done multi-ethnic church is that you now are side by side with your brothers and sisters from all different types. You don't get to remove yourself. And, or add it on after. what you say? Or add it on later, like as an afterthought. Yeah, you've got to deal with it in the moment, right? You've got to get up and talk about it because if you don't, the congregation will say, wait, or do you not see the burden? Do you not see the, the stuff that we're going through over here? And you have a, a, you have a, a God-given avenue to lament and to walk alongside people I as like Jesus did. I agree with you, Marcos, yeah. but I've been in enough multi-ethnic where there is silence. I, I know. There is silence. I know. Even though I'm sitting right next to someone who's lamenting. And that's what I would say is this is when the multi-ethnic church is, is failing. Yeah. It is not true because it has not created the necessary deep relationships. It has started itself on a concept of visual as opposed to a heart concept. 
There are many people who are going, I want to see people in there. It's going to be, everybody's going to look different. Right, beyond all Right, and even when they start, I've seen multi-ethnic churches start, but they don't continue the work throughout. They don't, they don't set up throughout, like, we're going to keep talking about this. We're going to do race classes. We're going, to, we're going to keep going after this because we know that the enemy is going to find ways to tear us apart, and it's going to be very easy for us to look like we're all together, but then we go and hide in our corners, and we lament, and we cry over here, and other people don't even see it because we haven't developed that relationship. It breaks my heart. I'm so, we're, we're going off. I'm sorry. It's okay. Here's what we're going to do. I'm gonna, I would like for Ryan Pale to read... Psalm 80, Dave and Val, can y'all come up and play music? I would like to, to lead us into yeah. prayer. Thank you, panel. Thank you, panel. I'm going to lead us into some prayer time. And, um, you know, I feel stretched. I feel stretched. And I'm uncomfortable. And I invited you here to be uncomfortable. And that makes me feel uncomfortable. I feel stretched. And I don't know how any of these things landed with you. Maybe your heart is hard in some places. Maybe your heart is hemorrhaging in some places. And maybe you need to repent. Maybe you need to lament. I don't know. I don't know where you are. I don't know how this hit you. But maybe we can lay it all out before the Lord together. Maybe we can just show up committed and kind. And we can lay it all out before the Lord together. And we can ask him to meet us right where we are. And that doesn't need to be the same for all of us right now. Our journeys are all different and we're all on different spots on it. But if we can just, just pray together and maybe you feel led to circle up with somebody that's in your small group or in a church with you or a stranger or a person of color. Maybe you need to slip upstairs and be alone. But we can cry out together and we can pray together. And we're going to take about five minutes to do all that. So Ryan's going to read for us. Our musicians are going to play for us. And we're going to pray as a community surrounding this topic and surrounding this issue of race and surrounding reconciliation, which I know it sounds like a romantic word. And the truth is, is that it's hard work and it's ugly and it's messy, but redemption usually is. So let's pray. If that's loud, that's fine. In the Bible, they moaned and sobbed, and they did it in public. O oh Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears, and you have made them to drink tears in large measure. You make us an object of contention to our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. O oh God of hosts, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow and the cedars of God with its boughs. It was sending out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why have you broken down its hedges so that all who pass that way pick its fruit? A boar from the forest eats it, to, eats it away, and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. O oh God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine, even the shoot which your right hand has planted, and on the sun whom you have strengthened for yourself. It is burned with fire and cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon a the son of man whom you made strong for yourself then we shall not turn back from you revive us and we will call upon your name O lord god of hosts restore us
cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. Give us this day, God. We have no other days that we can call upon. We know there's the past. We know there's the present. And we have no idea about the future. So give us this day, God. And may our daily bread, God, just be the sustenance that comes from you, the spiritual sustenance that we need. May our daily bread be the relational connections that we need to make for your glory. opportunities to stand in places of injustice, but give us this day our daily bread. God, as we forgive, as we forgive, as we forgive those that owe us a debt, help us to forgive our debtors. us to confess the need for forgiveness. Help us to lament the confessions we can't even make. Help us to overcome our own anger, our own rage, and to forgive. Just as you, Jesus, came and you forgave us. Before you even knew that we would confess, you forgave through our confession and your forgiveness, God, and the repentance of our lives, God, we have salvation. So help us to forgive others as you forgive us, God. 
and lead us not into temptation, the temptation to want to, to hold on to ourselves and our own identities and our own thoughts and our own uh, sub-identities, our, our right and our left, our nationalistic identities, our school identities, our church identities. Lead us not into the temptation of that, God, but and deliver us from the evil and the enemy that wants to tear us apart, that wants to divide us. Help us to be the people who will be pushing towards the unity that was already created in your son, Jesus. He had already torn down the walls of hostility. He had already built the bridge. And God, because we are broken and we are sinful, we, we built those walls back up and we tore down the bridges and we separated from each other again. Not segregated, which is lawful, but separated, which means it was by choice that we decided to do this. God, forgive us as we forgive others. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Because you are God, and you have the power, and we need to put ourselves in your hands in the midst of this. God, help us to not try to do this with our own strength, to not try to, to take our, put our hands and try to mess with it, God, but help us to come before you. Before we do anything else, before any other work we do, we come on our knees, we get before you, and we confess our sins, we lament the things we can't do anything about, and we put our hands in your power because you are the power and the glory. And the glory is for you. It's not for me. It's not for anyone in this room. But everything that we do here on this earth is to be made to give you glory, to point people to you, to your glory. May your church be an entity that when people see it, that it will see it united together and that it will live out all that Jesus prayed for on the night before he went to the cross. God, that we will be so united as one across economic barriers, across denominational barriers, across political barriers, across cultural barriers, across race barriers, that we will be so united that all that Jesus said would happen would happen. That the world would know that Jesus, you are from God, and that God loves them. God, help us to be, help us to be the people who show the world that God loves them by our unity. Because the opposite is happening. Our division is making, believe, making people believe you don't even exist. How can we talk about a reconciling God if we can't reconcile with one another? What kind of ministry is that? God, you have given us the call to be ambassadors of reconciliation for you. And it's not for our glory, but for your glory. Because for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.
we have to work together. We have to love one another. We have to come together even when it hurts and even when it's uncomfortable. And we've done that tonight. And I thank you. Can we keep doing that? Because nothing heroic happened here. It was just a, a beautiful moment or a nice conversation. And now it's about what we do. Thank you so much to everyone who participated here tonight. I have so many mentors. I wish that I could name them all. Corey Collins, Eric Mason, Robin D'Angelo, Austin Channing, Latasha Morrison, Sean King, Marcus Lloyd, Kelly Holly, Jonathan Martin, Carlos Rodriguez, Melissa Silver, Jennifer Cumberbatch, and my white friends, Andrea Pale, Krista Merrill, and Jean Marie Rich, who accompanied me so well. Thank you, all of you. If you participated, musicians, thank you so much. You traveled, you came, you stayed late. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Let's do this. We can do this church. Will you send us off, Dave? Alright, let's stand and sing joyful praise. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. It goes like this. concentrated sleep for all of you.